Welcome everyone to the Spoken Nerd, the tech podcast about all things tech and all things database. I'm your host, Con McDonald, and it's a special podcast, the first for 2022. Thanks for joining us. It's special because I have a guest with my podcast today. Normally I do them solo, but a special guest today, I'll be talking to Nigel Bayless. Welcome, Nigel. Hi, Connor. Hi. Good to be here, I think. <laughs> that's right. That's that's what Tim Hall said when he joined my podcast he? as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I seem to have established a reputation, but hopefully we'll both get through it unscathed. Now, for those that don't know Nigel Bayless, I'm sure most of the Oracle community do, but hopefully this podcast goes wider than that. He's the optimizer product manager. I did some trawling on LinkedIn and it says on LinkedIn, it says Nigel started at Oracle 19 years before I did. I've been at Oracle, I think, about six years now. So I think that adds up to about 25 years. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right. I've lost track, really, if I'm honest. But I think that sounds about right. Yeah, I think I got a pen recently. So that's that's about right. You get a pen after 25 years or something like that. So, oh, yeah. wow. One would hope it's a good pen. It's a very nice pen, yes. Yeah, it is It is that, yeah. So I was quite pleased with it. But yeah. But in fact, I've been uh, using Oracle since 1988. So that's an extremely long time. I always do remember that date. <laughs> 1988. In fact, that's, that's pretty, no, I was, that's, I was, that's before me. I used to you know, measure people's ages in the Oracle version number. So I was a, yeah. a late Oracle 5 baby, mainly Oracle 6. What, what was your vintage? Yeah, mine was briefly 5, then 6. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I do remember 5 and then being quite shocked at the differences that arrive with six. But yeah, I do remember that. Of course, I don't remember any of it now. <laughs> you know, the truth is, I might have been using it for a very long time. But of course, I don't remember all of that now. It's the first in first out now with my head. So it's maybe two weeks worth of information, I think generally now. But uh, yeah, well, I have to admit the volume of stuff you need to know about just Oracle database nowadays is just insane. Like it is the good yeah. old days of select update, delete, and, and two-char to handle the dates is, is pretty much gone. Yeah, I must admit, my first impression of SQL is, is that it was for babies because my background was uh, assembler language and what have you and C, and, and being exposed to select was, a, you know, what is this thing? It seems too easy. <laughs> In fact, trawling through the LinkedIn, uh, don't get me wrong, this is not a job interview. I'm not going to ask you, what are your goals? Where do you see yourself in five years? <laughs> or, or I won't do a Google thing, which is, you know, using only table access full. How many marbles are there in this jar? Yeah, those kind of <laughs> interviews. I saw on the LinkedIn, it said, on the earliest sort of parts of job history, it said SQL forms, reports, C and Fortran. Right, yeah. Do you, do you miss those days? Like now that our new language comes out every single few months? Do I miss them? Possibly, yeah. I mean, I must admit, my life in development was slightly frustrating because I never really got to do what I thought I wanted to do. So a lot of it was things like forms and RPT, RPF or whatever it was called. And it always felt a bit high level, <laughs> believe it or not, because I liked being in the sea and, and down really is the truth. But um, I, I miss it because there was a lot of camaraderie back then, you know, in those kind of jobs, you know, there's a room full of us working pretty long hours quite often and that never really bothered me because I was having fun I have to admit and I like the banter in the office with all the people there and I, I do miss that yeah it was a lot of fun but it was a lot of quite a lot of it was mundane you know sometimes there was a lot of copy and pasting rather than creating you know uh, development can sometimes slip into that mode I think where you kind of copy and paste a lot and you don't create but when you're creating and you you're there with lots of people Wow, that's great fun. And I do miss that for sure. Yeah. 
It's brilliant. I have to admit, one of the things, I mean, I've worked from home ever since I joined Oracle, but it's funny how even though nothing's changed about my working environment, the COVID situation sort of makes it feel like more isolating, which is weird because it hasn't changed my work life in any way. But one of the things that when I first started Oracle and working from home, first three months, I really struggled with that concept of not being in a room with a bunch of people, especially I'd come from a, a job which was very much that was going the whole agile way. So there was the daily stand-up and the after-lunch stand-up and the post-evening stand-up and groups sat together such that when bugs were found, you know, someone would ring a bell. And there's all these sort of what I thought were gimmicks because I was one of the mature, <laughs> well, I should say the older people in that teams. But yeah, like it's it does one of the things I did miss when I joined Oracle. And, and funny how COVID seems to reinforce that, even though it hasn't really changed my working life really as much. I mean, I think for me, <laughs> purely selfishly, it made things a little bit easier because I do work from home and because we're all in the same boat. It was, I found that people were slightly more willing to have conversations that were outside the scope of a fixed meeting, if you see what I mean. So it was not, for me, it was, it was quite good because I gave me the opportunity to be disruptive <laughs> like I am when I'm in an office and just have chats with people to some extent anyway. So it did make things a little bit easier, oddly for me, but yeah. So it, it, yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. So having touched on your background, I notice on Twitter, although your Twitter volume is not high, they're, they're more, it's more quality rather than quantity. <laughs> I, I notice your Twitter handle is VLDB. B, with a B on the end, VLDBB. Which obviously doesn't have any particular relationship to optimizers. Where does that handle come from? It's because I don't remember when I created it, but my background sort of towards the sort of late 90s was all centered around a lot of benchmarking, proof of concepts, very large databases in general. And so I, that's what I did really. I, I just worked on. I felt cutting edge stuff, things that were really as big as you can make them. And in fact, I worked on a proof of concept at the end of the 90s, which was really just when partitioning came in. And back then, you know, the database was, I think, something like 35 terabytes in total, something like that, which back then was really That's big. a big database. Yeah. yeah. So I've always been, you know, I was always proud of that because I used to love it. And so I... I generally kind of labeled myself, I suppose, as a very large database expert, but it, I also felt I like high transaction rate systems as well. You know, I like stuff that was difficult to do, if I'm honest. And the truth is as well, I didn't give my handle really a moment's thought. Uh, really, I just thought very large database, that's taken. So I thought very large database, Bayless, I'll have that then. And that was, that was the extent of it. It was literally in seconds, I just popped it in because I didn't really have any vision about how I would use it um, at all. And as well, I think when I created it, I was probably in development, but I was working as a data warehouse type PM in the data warehousing and big data group. So, you know, it all kind of made sense back then. I have to admit, nowadays we'd get our brand ambassador in and the brand you know, publicist in and they'd go through it and they'd do A-B testing on the likelihood of people remembering the handle and all that kind of nonsense. It's a yeah. bit of a different world when it comes to Twitter handles and stuff. So if your background was very large databases and proof of concepts, where did the switch come to being involved with the optimizer? Because that seems, uh, oh, I suppose, the bigger the database, the more challenging the, uh, yeah. the SQL performance and plans, et cetera. Is, is that what led to the switch? Or Yeah, I think... I. Now, I don't really know the history of it, but there seems to be, it seems to be the case that the optimizer PM, certainly from Maria, of course, sat in 
that particular group, the data warehouse and big data group. And I think that's largely a function of the fact queries are much more difficult in those environments. At least they should be. You know, so I think Optimizer PM just sat in that tree within development. And then uh, Maria went off for in memory. And then Tom Kite, I think, went on sabbatical. So we were in need. And in fact, it was 12.2 was coming up. And so we needed someone, of course, to look after all those aspects, particularly even, you know, the internal things that PM has to do. And we needed someone to do that. So my boss asked me, do I want to do it? I said, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, and so I, I did it. And I, I didn't really know what it would entail, if I'm honest. And part of it is is how you mold it, I guess. So but I, I would say I just took it because I thought it would be interesting. And it took me... I think maybe three years, two years to stop being terrified of it, if I'm really honest. You know, I think fairly early on, I had um, a panel at UKOUG and I still I still have nightmares about that because um, I, I didn't really know about it, you know, so much. I mean, I, I spent my whole career avoiding half, having to know what the optimizer does because that's the point, really. It's meant to do everything for you. You're not really meant to have to worry about what it actually does is the truth. And I can imagine if it's UKOG, one of those panels, you can imagine there'd be Jonathan and, and all, the, all the various optimizer brains trust floating around or all, all with, all with their like, and here's a particular niche case I'd like to raise right now. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can imagine being faced by Jonathan Lewis and maybe Neil Chandler and some others, you know, uh, Chris Antonini or, or looking at you think, oh my goodness, you know. Because hey, these these people know a great deal, obviously. So it is quite intimidating. And I do remember Jonathan basically saying something along the lines of, "Well, you would say that because you're a corporate shill or something." Not quite those words. But that's why he said, "I thought, oh, no, this is going well." And I actually I've mentioned that to him since. I think uh, he said, "Oh, he's you know he he's we kind of laughed about it. It's quite funny, really." Oh, to me, yeah, it is. It is good to have fun having some back and forth with Jonathan. I mean, it's it's funny. He's one of those few people that, and if Jonathan, if you're listening, with all due respect, I like the fact that he says he's retired and he's probably been more <laughs> more active on Twitter and blogging in technical terms than he's ever been. If anything, so. I know I have noticed. That's not gone unnoticed. <laughs> it's true. That's right. But I think over the years, you know, you get exposed to so much and so many things. And I must admit, I thought I'll never remember any of this. And I used to create a lot of um, mind maps and things to. Try try and remember how things would hold together and actually after a while things start to become I don't know you just sort of fit into the groove and you remember this stuff and how things interact although you know truth is I'm constantly surprised there are all sorts of things that happen I mean it's in the codes old a lot of it you know it's a lot of the core the truth is I can't know and I've become more relaxed with what I can and can't know now it is such a funny thing like I my first experience with any kind of optimizer was actually with db2 and it's funny on db2 on the mainframe you just accepted the fact that the optimizer was correct because the only thing it gave you was the cost and even that it was simply saying i'm now running your query and this is its cost right that, that was the only insight you had into what the optimizer really was doing in in these early versions when i was using db2 back in what was probably the 90s and it's funny how because of that you never questioned the optimizer because you were no. never given like it was just simply like i'm running it the best i can that's it. It's almost like we shot ourselves in the foot by saying, look, here's an execution plan. Here's, you know, here's the sort of the, the, the series of costing operations have gone on. It, it's almost like we gave ourselves enough rope to hang ourselves with because you're giving people clues as to how it 
came up with those decisions. I agree, actually. That's that that is a good point. And any optimization cannot cover everything. You know, it's always a subset of what is possible. And I guess what I face quite often are people saying that it works in this case, but not in this one. And you think we haven't done that yet. <laughs> sometimes and I think yeah as you expose the sort of wheels more you can see where there's a cog missing if it's if I can put it like that but you know no software solution is fully comprehensive it it can't be not something like an optimizer anyway you have to sort of tackle the biggest bang for the buck and you're balancing you know the cost of development against fitting with customer use cases and delivering those as well as we can you know it's a huge balancing act i do i I almost take it further if even if we had an infinite number of resources let's say oracle went out and got themselves ten thousand optimizer developers i think by definition the optimizer can never be perfect because there's an infinite number of sql statements that can be run which means you need an infinite number of stats in advance and even with that you then need an infinite number of seconds of parsing time because to know in advance what every join condition based on the data coming in is going to result. Effectively, you need a histogram on every column, every pair of columns, every triplet of columns on every single table, and then the same for the join results. The number is infinite. Yeah. So to, to lead into your question, like your statement about it's, it's a balancing act, what do you, where do you think the utopia is? Sh- should we constantly be trying to hit more and more targets with the optimizer or is it better to and therefore run the risk of increasing the past time increasing the amount of stats that need to be gathered or where, where do you think that the equilibrium or the or the utopia mm, yeah I, I mean you know because past time is always mitigated luckily by moore's law to some extent so <laughs> that's a sort of perhaps a get out of jail free card but i think we're driven by if i'm honest we we were often driven by competition of course we have to move forward and innovate all the time otherwise it grows stale and i know a lot of i certainly i'll admit when when was i dba briefly i kind of was but i always wanted everything to stay the same yeah i don't want it to change uh, you know so i absolutely 100 percent understand that point of view but that's not possible in the real world i think we have to move forward at all times and you know the joke is really the only way uh, the, the best optimizer or the one that would always work the best is probably one that runs every single plan that's available test how long they run and then say this one and then that's only good for t- for now <laughs> as well you know it's not good for tomorrow and then you know it's not even possible to test every plan for a lot of queries either so it's it's actually a, a very hard problem um you know it's amazing it does such a good job we have to try and remember that i think but we always have to move forward i don't think we can stand still i do think it's probably best to be cautious in a lot of ways because there are infinitely many different types of queries and we can never guess what a customer is going to do and you know i'm constantly shocked by the things customers do and i'm not saying they're bad but you look at them and go I never expected that or I would never have thought of even doing that. And and when you're hit with that all the time, you think, how do we even manage coping? How do we even deal with that? It's amazing. You know, it really is. It was funny cycling back to you said when you're working on large systems and they were some of the the tougher queries. It's funny, um, my experience has actually been somewhat almost the opposite in the sense that most of the data warehouses I've worked on, and this comes from the fact that I've often had a fair bit of say into how we've designed them. We've really embraced the concept of we're going to petition the living daylights out of this and have as few indexes as possible. And most of the constraints would be not present. They'll be you know, disabled rely so that the optimizer could use them, but they were not there. In terms of as a result of that, 
And this is, I'd love to say this is part of my own innovation, but it wasn't. It's generally something I picked up on from those real world performance videos that Andrew Holdsworth did back in the day when they were showing how cool Exadata was. And therefore, they were deliberately shifting the conversation toward fewer and fewer indexes. I found with a lot of data warehouses, we generally, we might not have had the best executions, but we had the most consistent and the most predictable plans because there were just so few options for the optimizer. It was very much like, you know, you're going to be doing a full table scan of all these things or partitions thereof, but there's not a lot of scope there. It's pretty much just going to be, you know, hash joining and anti-joining till the cows come home. I've always been, this sounds weird to have a favorite kind of execution path. <laughs> so, but I've, I've always had, a, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for hash joints. It's like, I always, I always found them, found them to be the best thing. Yeah, they are, aren't they? Let's face it. Yeah. They kind of read and read and off you go. It's very nice. Yeah. It's a difficult one because I, I suppose if I think about it, you've got this combination that you see quite often where you have a database that is there, it's general purpose, you know, and, and that's where it starts to get difficult. So you know, I saw a lot of things that I guess you label as operational data stores where they're big and they are actually transactional. They run business queries and things change all the time. But certainly when I was in amongst things, you've got this sort of stretching of what a database could do. It, you wouldn't say I'd have a database for this and a database for that and a database for the other. And I think that's that's the way the industry moves, isn't it? It wants to kind of consolidate things. And I, I always like the idea of consolidating all of my data in one place and then using it for lots of different things, yeah, transactional reporting and decision support and so on. And, and once you're in that mode, things start to get complicated. <laughs> so may, maybe that's what I have in mind really. And, and maybe again, the sort of the history of where the optimizer PM sits is an accident of history. I don't really know, but I guess I've always thought, you know, OLTP, for example, should be easy. Should be <laughs> because you indexes, you know, simple where clauses and off you go. Should be, but as soon as you get into mixed mode, it starts getting complicated. And generally, that means a lot of data, I suppose. Yeah, I know what you mean. Because if you're in pure data warehouse type queries, if, if that's such a thing does exist, then my experience, because I was also in the enterprise technology center for, I think, about seven years, where we would we had exadata machines to play with, you know, 24 by seven, if we wanted to, which was massive fun. Exactly. And yeah, you could just throw anything at it. <laughs> you know, it was fantastic. It was, it was, it was a riot actually, because customers brought in lots of very tricky workloads and we would just throw it at the exadata machine and off it would go. It was tremendous. And maybe that's why I always generally did have an easy path with the optimizer. For me, it always pretty much worked. If someone said, oh, my query is not running very well, I would say, have you gathered stats? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer to that was normally, oh, no, not really. <laughs> and then it would work. So, yeah, I don't know. Part, part of the issue for me is that as well, I'm a self-selecting human. In, no, people speak to me usually for because they're having difficulty somewhere or other. And that normally means, of course, I get to see that all the time rather than you know, the tens of thousands of people out there that it just works for and it never, never does anything that's vaguely unusual. <laughs> In fact, now that you bring that up, I'll, I'll, I'll shift track. You mentioned before that when you became the optimizer PM, it was a little bit like being thrown to the wolves, um, especially yep. at that UKG panel. It always strikes me as odd that the optimizer provokes so much emotion because if your database crashes, right, or, or even taking technology out of it, 
if I go down to the local cash machine or ATM, as we say here in Australia, and it says, you know, it's currently out of service, I can't get some cash out. I'll swear a bit and whatever and stamp my feet. But it's not like I, I then race home and write a blog post about how much I hate my particular bank or I don't go switch banks or bring it back to tech. If the database crashes, people sort of go, ah, oh, that's a pain. But if the optimizer picks one wrong plan, people lose their minds. They absolutely go mental. Yeah. Why, do you, why do you think it provokes that much emotion in, 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 in databases? Uh, well, I've got, I've got probably two angles on that. My first angle is that I must admit, I've never really understood that because for me, it was, I just felt, well, how can it get it right all the time? When you look at this where clause, <laughs> you know, it, it, I don't know. I think as you, as you get a broader perspective on it, you become more and more amazed it works so well actually and but I've always had that sense of perspective with it I've just thought you know it can't be it can't be right all the time and therefore I accept that so I've never had that emotion with it but I agree a lot of people really do and I find it really hard to understand I must I'll give you that I, I've, I've struggled with why and I think I actually think that the reason people do get emotional about it is more about why does it change i think that's the thing that i think people are most disturbed by and so this query used to work fine but now you've broken it and and that of course feels like it's made a mistake it's like someone's you taken know, something from you yeah, yeah that it's actually out to get you and you know this thing that it used to know how to do it's apparently suddenly forgotten and now it's made a mistake and i think that is the hard thing to to come to terms with because the reasons are software engineering reasons and they're valid reasons but you know when it does get you like that it can be frustrating well at least annoying and more you know you know your job's on the line as well where you're running this system and you've got it in a good state and now you've got a query that takes a lot longer than it's ever taken before and yeah, you want to blame the optimizer, you do. I think that's what it is. And so I kind of understand that. But as I say, the reasons for that are understandable, but it's getting to grips with that and understanding uh, why, why it can happen, how it happens and what you can do about it. Yeah. So we got first rows, all rows, but out to get you mode, that comes in 25C. <laughs> that's a, that's, a, that's, a that's the thing, you, you know. But yeah, you, I do get emails where people are really, really upset because as I say, question you always ask is why has my plan changed what why what is that and that of course that's a really hard question to answer but very often you look at the query and you can see that in fact estimating the cardinality for a lot of queries is incredibly difficult and if you don't use something like dynamic sampling or what have you then it's going to move further and further away from an accurate cardinality and sometimes i never normally say this but there's an element of luck here you know where if you get a con a query that's hard to estimate you may be lucky that that estimate happens to give you a plan that's fine at the beginning but uh, later on it might not so it's tricky and I had to admit, I certainly take your point. I hadn't really thought that through in terms of there may actually be people whose, you know, their, their job or their remuneration or their, their bonus, et cetera, is, is hooked into system performance. And therefore, yeah. the optimizer might be something that, yeah, they, they do have strong emotions to because it's strongly attached to their job performance or how they're rated on their job performance. And on that note, the recognition that the optimizer can indeed impact the emotional state of the DBA 
Because of the relationship to their job performance or job rating, we'll wrap up this podcast episode, but continue that conversation with Nigel in the next episode. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The music credit goes to Zanman from Pixabay Music. 